Section 20 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 20. Then they were silenced, heralded by the waving tremolo of the violin part, which formed a bristling bodyguard of sound two octaves above it, and, as in a mountainous country, against the seeming immobility of a vertically falling torrent, one may distinguish, two hundred feet below, the tiny form of a woman walking in the valley. The little phrase had just appeared, distant but graceful, protected by the long, gradual unfurling of its transparent, incessant, and sonorous curtain. And Swann, in his heart of hearts, turned to it, spoke to it as a confidant, in the secret of his love, as to a friend of Odette who would assure him that he need pay no attention to this Fourcheville. Ah, you've come too late, Madame Verdurin greeted one of the faithful, whose invitation had been only to look in after dinner. We've been having a simply incomparable brichot. You never heard such eloquence. But he's gone. Isn't that so, Monsieur Swann? I believe it's the first time you've met him, she went on to emphasize the fact that it was to her that Swann owed the introduction. Isn't that so? Wasn't he delicious, our Brichot? Swann bowed politely. No, you weren't interested, she asked dryly. Oh, but I assure you I was quite enthralled. He is, perhaps, a little too peremptory, a little too jovial for my taste. I should like to see him a little less confident at times, a little more tolerant. But one feels that he knows a great deal, and on the whole he seems a very sound fellow. The party broke up very late. Cotard's first words to his wife were, I have rarely seen Madame Verdurin in such form as she was to-night. <clears throat> what exactly is your Madame Verdurin? A bit of a bad hat, eh? said Forcheville to the painter, to whom he had offered a lift. Odette watched his departure with regret. She dared not refuse to let Swann take her home, but she was moody and irritable in the carriage, and when he asked whether he might come in, replied, I suppose so, with an impatient shrug of her shoulders. When they had all gone, Madame Verdurin said to her husband, Did you notice the way Swann laughed, such an idiotic laugh, when we spoke about Madame la Tremoille? She had remarked more than once, how Swann and Forcheville suppressed the particle de before that lady's name, never doubting that it was done on purpose to show that they were not afraid of a title, she had made up her mind to imitate their arrogance, but had not quite grasped what grammatical form it ought to take. Moreover, the natural corruptness of her speech, overcoming her implacable republicanism, she still said instinctively, the de la tremouille, or rather by an abbreviation sanctified by the usage of music-hall singers and writers of the captions beneath caricatures, would elide the de, the de la tremouille, but she corrected herself at once to Madame la tremouille, the Duchess, as Swann calls her, she said ironically, with a smile which proved that she was merely quoting, and would not herself 
except the least responsibility for a classification so puerile and absurd i don't mind saying that i thought him extremely stupid Monsieur Verdurin took it up. He's not sincere. He's a crafty customer, always hovering between one side and the other. He's always trying to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. What a difference between him and Fourcheville. There, at least, you have a man who tells you straight out what he thinks. Either you agree with him or you don't not like the other fellow who's never definitely fish or fowl did you notice by the way that odette seemed all out for forcheville and i don't blame her either and then after all if swann tries to come the man of fashion over us the champion of distressed duchesses at any rate the other man has got a title he's always con de fourchille he let the words slip delicately from his lips as though familiar with every page of the history of that dignity he were making a scrupulously exact estimate of its value in relation to others of the sort i don't mind saying madame verdurin went on that he saw fit to utter some most venomous and quite absurd insinuations against Brichot. Naturally, once he saw that Brichot was popular in this house, it was a way of hitting back at us, of spoiling our party. I know his sort, the dear good friend of the family, who pulls you all to pieces on the stairs as he's going away. Didn't I say so, retorted her husband. He's simply a failure a poor little wretch who goes through life mad with jealousy of anything that's at all big. Had the truth been known, there was not one of the faithful who was not infinitely more malicious than Swann, but the others would all take the precaution of tempering their malice with obvious pleasantries, with little sparks of emotion and cordiality while the least indication of reserve on swann's part undraped in any such conventional formula of of course i don't want to say anything to which he would have scorned to descend appeared to them a deliberate act of treachery there are certain original and distinguished authors in whom the least freedom of speech is thought revolting because they have not begun by flattering the public taste, and serving up to it the commonplace expressions to which it is used. It was by the same process that Swann infuriated M. Verdurin. In his case, as in theirs, it was the novelty of his language which led his audience to suspect the blackness of his designs. Swann was still unconscious of the disgrace that threatened him at the Verdurins, and continued to regard all their absurdities in the most rosy light through the admiring eyes of love. As a rule, he made no appointments with Odette except for the evenings. He was afraid of her growing tired of him if he visited her during the day as well. At the same time, he was reluctant to forfeit even for an hour the place that he held in her thoughts and so was constantly looking out for an opportunity of claiming her attention in any way that would not be displeasing to her if in a florist's or a jeweler's window a plant or an ornament caught his eye he would at once think of sending them to odette imagining that the pleasure which the casual sight of them had given him, would instinctively be felt also by her, and would increase her affection for himself, and he would order them to be taken at once to the Rue La Perouse, so as to accelerate the moment in which, as she received an offering from him, he might feel himself, in a sense, transported into her presence. 
he was particularly anxious always that she should receive these presents before she went out for the evening so that her sense of gratitude towards him might give additional tenderness to her welcome when he arrived at the verdurins might even for all he knew if the shopkeeper made haste bring him a letter from her before dinner or herself in person upon his doorstep come on a little extraordinary visit of thanks as in an earlier phase when he had experimented with the reflex action of anger and contempt upon her character he sought now by that of gratification to elicit from her fresh particles of her intimate feelings which she never yet revealed often she was embarrassed by lack of money and under pressure from a creditor would come to him for assistance he enjoyed this as he enjoyed everything which could impress odette with his love for herself or merely with his influence with the extent of the use that she might make of him probably if any one had said to him at the beginning it's your position that attracts her or at this stage it's your money that she really is in love with he would not have believed the suggestion nor would he have been greatly distressed by the thought that people supposed her to be attached to him that people felt them to be united by any ties so binding as those of snobbishness or wealth but even if he had accepted the possibility it might not have caused him any suffering to discover that odette's love for him was based on a foundation more lasting than mere affection or any attractive qualities which she might have found in him on a sound commercial interest an interest which would postpone forever the fatal day on which she might be tempted to bring their relations to an end for the moment while he lavished presents upon her and performed all manner of services he could rely on advantages not contained in his person or in his intellect could forego the endless killing effort to make himself attractive and this delight in being a lover in living by love alone of the reality of which he was inclined to be doubtful the price which in the long run he must pay for it as a dilettante in immaterial sensations enhanced its value in his eyes as one sees people who are doubtful whether the sight of the sea and the sound of its waves are really enjoyable become convinced that they are as also of the rare quality and absolute detachment of their own taste when they have agreed to pay several pounds a day for a room in a hotel from which that sight and that sound may be enjoyed one day when reflections of this order had brought him once again to the memory of the time when someone had spoken to him of odette as of a kept woman and when once again he had amused himself with contrasting that strange personification the kept woman an iridescent mixture of unknown and demoniacal qualities embroidered as in some fantasy of gustave moreau with poison dripping flowers interwoven with precious jewels with that of odette upon whose face he had watched the passage of the same expressions of pity for a sufferer resentment of an act of injustice gratitude for an act of kindness which he had seen in earlier days on his own mother's face and on the faces of friends that odette whose conversation had so frequently turned on the things that he himself knew better than any one his collections his room his old servant his banker who kept all his title deeds and bonds the thought of the banker reminded him that he must call on him shortly to draw some money and indeed if during the current month 
he were to come less liberally to the aid of Odette in her financial difficulties than in the month before, when he had given her five thousand francs, if he refrained from offering her a diamond necklace for which she longed, he would be allowing her admiration for his generosity to decline. That gratitude which had made him so happy, and would even be running the risk of her imagining that his love for her, as she saw its visible manifestations grow fewer, had itself diminished. And then, suddenly, he asked himself whether that was not precisely what was implied by keeping a woman, as if, in fact, that idea of keeping could be derived from elements not at all mysterious nor perverse, but belonging to the intimate routine of his daily life, such as that thousand-franc note, a familiar and domestic object, torn in places and mended with gummed paper, which his valet, after paying the household accounts and the rent, had locked up high in a drawer in the old writing-desk, whence he had extracted it to send it, with four others, to Odette and whether it was not possible to apply to Odette, since he had known her, for he never imagined for a moment that she could ever have taken a penny from anyone else before, that title, which he had believed so wholly inapplicable to her, of kept woman. He could not explore the idea further, for a sudden access of that mental lethargy which was with him congenital, intermittent and providential, happened at that moment to extinguish every particle of light in his brain, as instantaneously as, at a later period when electric lighting had been everywhere installed, it became possible, merely by fingering a switch, to cut off all the supply of light from a house. His mind fumbled for a moment in the darkness, he took off his spectacles, wiped the glasses, passed his hands over his eyes, but saw no light until he found himself face to face with a wholly different idea, the realization that he must endeavor in the coming month to send Odette six or seven thousand franc notes instead of five, simply as a surprise for her and to give her pleasure. In the evening, when he did not stay at home, until it was time to meet Odette at the Verdurins, or rather at one of the open-air restaurants which they liked to frequent in the Bois, and especially at St. Cloud, he would go to dine in one of those fashionable houses in which, at one time, he had been a constant guest. He did not wish to lose touch with people who, for all he knew, might be of use some day to Odette, and thanks to whom he was often, in the meantime, able to procure for her some privilege or pleasure. Besides, he had been used for so long to the refinement and comfort of good society, that side by side with his contempt there had grown up also a desperate need for it, with the result that when he had reached the point after which the humblest lodgings appeared to him as precisely on a par with the most princely mansions, his senses were so thoroughly accustomed to the latter that he could not enter the former without a feeling of acute discomfort. He had the same regard, to a degree of identity which they would never have suspected, for the little families with small incomes who asked him to dances in their flats, straight upstairs to the fifth floor, and the door on the left, as for the Princesse de Parme, who gave the most splendid parties in Paris, but he had not the feeling of being actually at the ball, when he found himself herded with the fathers of families in the bedroom of the lady of the house, while the spectacle of wash-hand stands, covered over with towels, and of beds converted into cloak-rooms, with a mass of hats and great coats sprawling over their counterpanes, 
gave him the same stifling sensation that, nowadays, people who have been used for half a lifetime to electric light derive from a smoking lamp or a candle that needs to be snuffed. If he were dining out, he would order his carriage for half-past seven. While he changed his clothes, he would be wondering, all the time, about Odette, and in this way was never alone, for the constant thought of Odette gave to the moments in which he was separated from her the same peculiar charm as those in which she was at his side. He would get into his carriage and drive off, but he knew that this thought had jumped in after him and had settled down upon his knee, like a pet animal which he might take everywhere, and would keep with him at the dinner-table, unobserved by his fellow guests. He would stroke and fondle it, warm himself with it, and, as a feeling of languor swept over him, would give way to a slight shuddering movement which contracted his throat and nostrils, a new experience this, as he fastened the bunch of columbines in his buttonhole. He had, for some time, been feeling neither well nor happy, especially since Odette had brought Fourchefield to the Verdurins, and he would have liked to go away for a while to rest in the country. But he could never summon up the courage to leave Paris, even for a day, while Odette was there. The weather was warm. It was the finest part of spring. And, for all that, he was driving through a city of stone to immure himself in a house without grass or garden. What was incessantly before his eyes was a park that he owned near Cambrai, where, at four in the afternoon, before coming to the asparagus bed, thanks for the breeze that was wafted across the fields from Mesaglise, he would enjoy the fragrant coolness of the air, as well beneath an arbor of hornbeams, in the garden as by the bank of the pond, fringed with forget-me-not and iris, and where, when he sat down to dinner, trained and twined by the gardener's skilful hand, there ran all about his table currant-bush and rose. After dinner, if he had an early appointment in the Bois, or at St. Cloud, he would rise from table and leave the house so abruptly, especially if it threatened to rain, and so to scatter the faithful before their normal time, that on one occasion the Princesse de Lome, at whose house dinner had been so late that Swann had left before the coffee came in, to join the Verdurins on the island in the Bois, observed, Really, if Swann were thirty years older, and had diabetes, there might be some excuse for his running away like that. He seems to look upon us all as a joke. He persuaded himself that the springtime charm, which he could not go down to Cambrai to enjoy, he would find at least on the A de Sing or at St. Cloud. But as he could think only of Odette, he would return home, not knowing even if he had tasted the fragrance of the young leaves, or if the moon had been shining. He would be welcomed by the little phrase from the sonata, played in the garden on the restaurant piano. If there was none in the garden, the Verdurins would have taken immense pains to have a piano brought out, either from a private room or from the restaurant itself not because Swann was now restored to favour, far from it, but the idea of arranging an ingenious form of entertainment for someone, even for someone whom they disliked, would stimulate them, during the time spent in its preparation, to a momentary sense of cordiality and affection. Now and then he would remind himself that another fine spring evening was drawing to a close, and would force himself to notice the trees and the sky. But the state of excitement into which Odette's presence never failed to throw him, added to a feverish ailment which, 
for some time now, had scarcely left him, robbed him of that sense of quiet and comfort, which is an indispensable background to the impressions that we derive from nature. One evening, when Swann had consented to dine with the Verdurins, and had mentioned during dinner that he had to attend, next day, the annual banquet of an old comrades' association, Odette had at once exclaimed across the table in front of everyone, in front of Forcheville, who was now one of the faithful, in front of the painter, in front of Qatar. Yes, I know you have your banquet tomorrow. I shan't see you then till I get home. Don't be too late. And although Swann had never taken offence at all seriously at Odette's demonstrations of friendship for one or other of the faithful, he felt an exquisite pleasure on hearing her thus avow before them all, with that calm immodesty, the fact that they saw each other regularly every evening. His privileged position in her house, and her own preference for him, which it implied. It was true that Swann had often reflected that Odette was in no way a remarkable woman, and in the supremacy which he wielded over a creature so distinctly inferior to himself, there was nothing that especially flattered him when he heard it proclaimed to all the faithful but since he observed that to several other men than himself odette seemed a fascinating and desirable woman the attraction which her body held for him had aroused a painful longing to secure the absolute mastery of even the tiniest particles of her heart and he had begun to attach an incalculable value to those moments passed in her house in the evenings when he held her upon his knee, made her tell him what she thought about this or that, and counted over that treasure to which alone of all his earthly possessions he still clung. And so, after this dinner, drawing her aside, he took care to thank her effusively, seeking to indicate to her by the extent of his gratitude the corresponding intensity of the pleasures which was in her power to bestow on him, the supreme pleasure being to guarantee him immunity for as long as his love should last, and he remain vulnerable, from the assaults of jealousy. When he came away from his banquet the next evening, it was pouring rain, and he had nothing but his victoria. A friend offered to take him home in a closed carriage, and as Odette, by the fact of her having invited him to come, had given him an assurance that she was expecting no one else, he could, with a quiet mind and an untroubled heart, rather than set off thus in the rain, have gone home and to bed. But perhaps if she saw that he seemed not to adhere to his resolution to end every evening, without exception, in her company, she might grow careless, and fail to keep free for him just the one evening on which he particularly desired it. It was after eleven when he reached her door, and as he made his apology for having been unable to come away earlier, she complained that it was indeed very late. The storm had made her unwell, her head ached, and she warned him that she would not let him stay longer than half an hour, that at midnight she would send him away. A little while later she felt tired and wished to sleep. No cat Leia to-night, then, he asked, and I've been looking forward so to a nice little cat Leia. But she was irresponsive, saying nervously, No, dear, no cat Leia to-night. Can't you see I'm not well? It might have done you good, but I won't bother you. She begged him to put out the light before he went. He drew the curtains close round her bed and left her. But when he was in his own house again, 
the idea suddenly struck him that perhaps Odette was expecting someone else that evening, that she had merely pretended to be tired, that she had asked him to put the light out only so that he should suppose that she was going to sleep, that the moment he had left the house she had lighted it again, and had reopened her door to the stranger who was to be her guest for the night. He looked at his watch. It was about an hour and a half since he had left her. He went out, took a cab, and stopped it close to her house, in a little street running at right angles to that other street, which lay at the back of her house, and along which he used to go, sometimes, to tap upon her bedroom window, for her to let him in. He left his cab. The streets were all deserted and dark. He walked a few yards, and came out almost opposite her house. Amid the glimmering blackness of all the row of windows, the lights in which had long since been put out, he saw one, and only one, from which overflowed, between the slats of its shutters, dosed like a wine-press over its mysterious golden juice, the light that filled the room within, a light which, on so many evenings, as soon as he saw it, far off, as he turned into the street, had rejoiced his heart with its message, She is there, expecting you. And now, tortured him with, She is there with the man she was expecting. He must know who. He tiptoed along by the wall until he reached the window, but between the slanting bars of the shutters he could see nothing. He could hear, only in the silence of the night, the murmur of conversation. What agony he suffered as he watched that light, in whose golden atmosphere were moving, behind the closed sash, the unseen and detested pair as he listened to that murmur which revealed the presence of the man who had crept in after his own departure the perfidy of odette and the pleasures which she was at that moment tasting with the stranger and yet he was not sorry that he had come the torment which had forced him to leave his house had lost its sharpness when it lost its uncertainty now that Odette's other life, of which he had had, at that first moment, a sudden helpless suspicion, was definitely there, almost within his grasp, before his eyes, in the full glare of the lamplight, caught and kept there, an unwitting prisoner, in that room into which, when he would, he might force his way to surprise and seize it, or rather he would tap upon the shutters, as he had often done, when he had come there very late, and by that signal Odette would at least learn that he knew, that he had seen the light, and had heard the voices, while he himself, who a moment ago had been picturing her as laughing at him, as sharing with that other the knowledge of how effectively he had been tricked, now it was he that saw them, confident and persistent in their error, tricked and trapped by none other than himself, whom they believed to be a mile away, but who was there in person, there with a plan, there with the knowledge that he was going, in another minute, to tap upon the shutter. And perhaps what he felt, almost an agreeable feeling, at that moment, was something more than relief at the solution of a doubt, at the soothing of a pain, was an intellectual pleasure. If, since he had fallen in love, things had recovered a little of the delicate attraction that they had for him long ago, though only when a light was shed upon them by a thought, a memory of Odette, now it was another of the faculties prominent in the studious days of his youth, that Odette had quickened with new life the passion for truth, but for a truth which, too, 
was interposed between himself and his mistress, receiving its light from her alone, a private and personal truth, the sole object of which, an infinitely precious object, and one almost impersonal in its absolute beauty, was Odette. Odette in her activities, her environment, her projects, and her past. At every other period in his life, the little everyday words and actions of another person had always seemed wholly valueless to Swann. If gossip about such things were repeated to him, he would dismiss it as insignificant, and while he listened it was only the lowest, the most commonplace part of his mind that was interested. At such moments he felt utterly dull and uninspired. But in this strange phase of love, the personality of another person becomes so enlarged, so deepened, that the curiosity which he could now feel aroused in himself to know the least details of a woman's daily occupation was the same thirst for knowledge with which he had once studied history, and all manner of actions from which, until now, he would have recoiled in shame, such as spying tonight outside a window, tomorrow, for all he knew, putting adroitly provocative questions to casual witnesses, bribing servants, listening at doors, seemed to him now to be precisely on a level with the deciphering of manuscripts, the weighing of evidence, the interpretation of old monuments, that was to say, so many different methods of scientific investigation, each one having a definite intellectual value, and being legitimately employable in the search for truth. As his hand stole out towards the shutters, he felt a pang of shame at the thought that Odette would now know that he had suspected her, that he had returned, that he had posted himself outside her window. She had often told him what a horror she had of jealous men, of lovers who spied. What he was going to do would be extremely awkward, and she would detest him for ever after whereas now, for the moment, for so long as he refrained from knocking, perhaps even in the act of infidelity, she loved him still. How often is not the prospect of future happiness thus sacrificed to one's impatient insistence upon an immediate gratification? But his desire to know the truth was stronger, and seemed to him nobler, than his desire for her. He knew that the true story of certain events, which he would have given his life to be able to reconstruct accurately and in full, was to be read within that window, streaked with bars of light, as within the illuminated golden boards of one of those precious manuscripts, by whose wealth of artistic treasures the scholar who consults them, cannot remain unmoved. He yearned for the satisfaction of knowing the truth, which so impassioned him in that brief, fleeting, precious transcript, on that translucent page, so warm, so beautiful. And besides the advantage which he felt, which he so desperately wanted to feel, that he had over them, lay perhaps not so much in knowing as in being able to show them that he knew. He drew himself up on tiptoe. He knocked. They had not heard. He knocked again, louder. Their conversation ceased. A man's voice. He strained his ears to distinguish whose, among such of Odette's friends as he knew, the voice could be. Asked, Who's that? He could not be certain of the voice. He knocked once again. The window first, then the shutters were thrown open. It was too late now to retire, and since she must know all, so as not to seem 
too contemptible, too jealous and inquisitive, he called out in a careless, hearty, welcoming tone, Please, don't bother. I just happened to be passing and saw the light. I wanted to know if you were feeling better. He looked up. Two old gentlemen stood facing him in the window, one of them with a lamp in his hand, and beyond that he could see into the room, a room that he had never seen before. Having fallen into the habit, when he came late to Odette, of identifying her window by the fact that it was the only one still lighted in a row of windows otherwise all alike, he had been misled this time by the light, and had knocked at the window beyond hers, in the adjoining house. He made what apology he could, and hurried home, overjoyed that the satisfaction of his curiosity had preserved their love intact, and that, having feigned for so long, when in Odette's company, a sort of indifference, he had not now by a demonstration of jealousy, given her proof that the excess of his own passion, which in a pair of lovers fully and finally dispenses the recipient from the obligation to love the other enough. He never spoke to her of this misadventure. He ceased to think of it himself. But now and then his thoughts in their wandering course would come upon this memory, where it lay unobserved, would startle it into life, thrust it more deeply down into his consciousness, and leave him aching with a sharp, far-rooted pain. As though this had been a bodily pain, Swann's mind was powerless to alleviate it. In the case of bodily pain, however, since it is independent of the mind, the mind can dwell upon it, can note that it has diminished, that it has momentarily ceased. But with this mental pain, the mind, merely by recalling it, created it afresh. To determine not to think of it was but to think of it still, to suffer from it still. And when, in conversations with his friends, he forgot his sufferings, suddenly, a word casually uttered would make him change countenance, as a wounded man does when a clumsy hand has touched his aching limb. When he came away from Odette, he was happy, he felt calm, he recalled the smile with which, in gentle mockery, she had spoken to him of this man or of that, a smile which was all tenderness for himself. He recalled the gravity of her head when she seemed to have lifted it from its axis to let it droop and fall, as though against her will, upon his lips, as she had done on that first evening in the carriage, her languishing gaze at him while she lay nestling in his arms, her bended head seeming to recede between her shoulders, as though shrinking from the cold. But then at once, his jealousy, as it had been the shadow of his love, presented him with the compliment, with the converse of that new smile with which she had greeted him that very evening, with which now, perversely, she was mocking Swann while she tendered her love to another, of that lowering of her head, but lowered now to fall on other lips, and, but bestowed upon a stranger, of all the marks of affection that she had shown to him. In all these voluptuous memories, which he bore away from her house, were, as one might say, but so many sketches, rough plans, like the schemes of decoration which a designer submits to one in outline enabling Swann to form an idea of the various attitudes, aflame or faint with passion, which she was capable of adopting for others, with the result that he came to regret every pleasure that he tasted in her company, every new caress that he invented, 
and had been so imprudent as to point out to her how delightful it was, every fresh charm that he found in her, for he knew that a moment later they would go to enrich the collection of instruments in his secret torture chamber. A fresh turn was given to the screw when Swann recalled a sudden expression which he had intercepted a few days earlier, and for the first time in Odette's eyes. It was after dinner at the Verdurins. Whether it was because Forcheville, aware that Sagnette, his brother-in-law, was not in favour with them, had decided to make a butt of him, and to shine at his expense, or because he had been annoyed by some awkward remark which Sagnette had made to him, although it had passed unnoticed by the rest of the party, who knew nothing of whatever tactless illusion it might conceal, or possibly because he had been for some time looking out for an opportunity of securing the expulsion from the house of a fellow-guest, who knew rather too much about him, and whom he knew to be so nice-minded that he himself could not help feeling embarrassed at times merely by his presence in the room. Forcheville replied to Sagnette's tactless utterance with such a volley of abuse going out of his way to insult him, emboldened the louder he shouted by the fear, the pain, the entreaties of his victim, that the poor creature, after asking Madame Verdurin whether he should stay and receiving no answer, had left the house in stammering confusion and with tears in his eyes. Odette had looked on impassive at this scene. But when the door had closed behind Sagnette, she had forced the normal expression of her face down, as the saying is by several pegs, so as to bring herself on the same level of vulgarity as Forcheville. Her eyes had sparkled with a malicious smile of congratulation upon his audacity, of ironical pity for the poor wretch who had been its victim. She had darted at him a look of complicity in the crime, which so clearly implied, that's finished him off, or I'm very much mistaken. Did you see what a fool he looked? He was actually crying that Forcheville, when his eyes met hers, sobered in a moment from the anger, or pretended anger with which he was still flushed, smiled as he explained, he need only have made himself pleasant, and he'd have been here still. A good scolding does a man no harm at any time. One day, when Swann had gone out early in the afternoon to pay a call, and had failed to find the person at home whom he wished to see, it occurred to him to go, instead, to Odette, at an hour when, although he never went to her house then as a rule, he knew that she was always at home, resting or writing letters until tea-time, and would enjoy seeing her for a moment, if it did not disturb her. The porter told him that he believed Odette to be in, Swan rang the bell, thought that he heard a sound, that he heard footsteps, but no one came to the door. Anxious and annoyed, he went around to the other little street at the back of her house, and stood beneath her bedroom window. The curtains were drawn, and he could see nothing. He knocked loudly upon the pane. He shouted. Still no one came. He could see that the neighbors were staring at him. He turned away, thinking that, after all, he had perhaps been mistaken in believing that he heard footsteps. But he remained so preoccupied with the suspicion that he could turn his mind to nothing else. After waiting for an hour, he returned. He found her at home. She told him that she had been in the house when he rang, but had been asleep. The bell had awakened her. She had guessed that it must be Swann, and had run out to meet him, 
but he had already gone. She had, of course, heard him knocking at the window. Swann could at once detect, in this story, one of those fragments of literal truth which liars, when taken by a surprise, console themselves by introducing into the composition of the falsehood which they have to invent, thinking that it can be safely incorporated, and will lend the whole story an air of verisimilitude. It was true that, when Odette had just done something which she did not wish to disclose, she would take pains to conceal it in a secret place in her heart. But as soon as she found herself face to face with the man to whom she was obliged to lie, she became uneasy. All her ideas melted like wax before a flame. Her inventive and her reasoning faculties were paralyzed. She might ransack her brain, but would find only a void. Still, she must say something, and there lay within her reach precisely the fact which she had wished to conceal, which being the truth was the one thing that had remained. She broke off from it a tiny fragment, of no importance in itself, assuring herself that, after all, it was the best thing to do, since it was a detail of the truth, and less dangerous, therefore, than a falsehood. At any rate, this is true, she said to herself, that's always something to the good. He may make inquiries. He will see that this is true. It won't be this. Anyhow, that will give me away but she was wrong. It was what gave her away. She had not taken into account that this fragmentary detail of the truth had sharp edges which could not be made to fit in, except to those contiguous fragments of the truth from which she had arbitrarily detached it, edges which, whatever the fictitious details in which she might embed it, would continue to show by their overlapping angles, and by the gaps which she had forgotten to fill, that its proper place was elsewhere. End of section 20